Bismillah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. We're continuing in our glimpses from the lives of Ahlul Qur'an. Uh, glimpses from the lives of the people of Qur'an. So uh, we're on today. We're going to cover Sheikh Al-Minshawi, Muhammad Siddiq Al-Minshawi, Rahimahullah. As well as Sheikh Mahmoud Khalil Al-Husri. Sheikh Mahmoud Khalil Al-Husri. And probably at the end, I'm going to read what I have uh, from the biography of one famous female reciter too, inshaAllah. So, Bismillah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. We'll start with Sheikh Muhammad Siddiq al-Minshawi. Allah yurhamu. He uh, was born on January 20th, 1920. January 20th, 1920. And he died on June 20th, 1969. So he lived to be 49 years old. Um, relatively young. He was born into a family of the Qur'an. Uh, his father was a Qari. His grandfather was a Qari. His brother is a Qari. And so on. So they're a family that love the Qur'an. It's said that actually his father, all of all of the children were Hufad. And, um, and so he grew up in kind of like this environment. And he grew up also... Um, like attending the gatherings of recitation of the Quran with his father. He was born in uh, Minsha, which is why he's called Minshawi, and that's from the area of Suhag, Suhag in southern Egypt. The people of southern Egypt are known for certain qualities, not the ones that they make fun of in movies and stuff like that, but they're known for other very important qualities such as being people of great honor and great dignity and great self-worth. And so he was raised at the same time as all of that to be also a worshiper, to be a humble person. Um, but as we'll see from some of the stories, um, he had humility in the right place and honor and dignity in the right place. Uh, it said, for example, that he was so humble that he would just wear regular clothes. He would sit out in front of his building, building that he lived in. And he would sit out there like as if he's a bawab. Bawab is like the person who uh, watches the building. And uh, people would come to him and they would be like, are you the bawab? And he'd be like, oh, I'm bawab. Okay, I'm the bawab. You know, people would call him bawab. He'd be like, yeah, I'm the bawab. No problem. Do you need something? Go and get something. Even there's a, a, a scene, and I guess it's a some sort of cinematic representation of his life where uh, two people come up, and uh, he's sitting there, and he looks like just the haddis of the building, the guard of the building, and they tell him, yeah, love, like go and go and bring um, Sheikh Minshawi, you know. So he's like, how did I'll go and bring him? Then he goes upstairs, he changes his clothes, and comes back, <laughs> you know, same same person. So. Uh, he was very humble in that way and uh, would just kind of like, you know, take it easy. Um, uh, he would recite. They say that his recitation would kind of like show you the meaning of it. 
Um, they say that when he would recite, he would sit in t- the same position you sit for tashahud. So he'd sit very humbly. And they said also that many times when he would recite, he would close his eyes and not open them until his reciting was done. To the point that people would think that he was blind if they didn't know. They would think that he was blind. Um, again, his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather were all Qurrat. He finished the Qur'an while he was young, when he was about eight years old. And, um, you know, as I think I kind of hinted at before, he was, I don't know if the only person, but one of definitely, the in the first period, definitely one of the only people that he became a reciter for the radio without being tested. Um, because he was in southern Egypt and they heard about him and they they contacted him and they called him to come to recite for the radio and this was in Ramadan and he told them no and they were like huh <laughs> like how do you just say no to being requested to come you know be be um, be tested and to to come for um, uh, for this exam like how can you just say no to that when um, like it's a big deal you know he's like yeah he's like when I'm in Ramadan I don't like to travel I don't travel in Ramadan so I don't care who you are <laughs> if you're asking me to travel in Ramadan I'm not going to travel in Ramadan but they still wanted to hear him and stuff so there's another narration around it too that I read somewhere else but uh, we'll get to it later but um, you know they wanted to hear him still so they sent the team out to hear one of his recitations and record it and bring it back to Cairo so the team went out and they they went to like one of his gatherings where he was reciting and they recorded the recitation they brought it back to Cairo and when the the people who give the exam and stuff they heard it then they immediately uh, they gave him the permission to become like you know they invited him to be an official reciter on the radio uh, as I mentioned he spent a lot of time with his father he had he would spend a lot of time with his father going to these gatherings going to these different things um, he had a lot of love for his hometown even afterwards when he became more well known and moved to Cairo and stuff like that he said in one interview that every you know at least every two months he has to go to his hometown so go to his hometown, sit with the people, visit the people, you know, uh, just, you know, love the people that he came up around. Uh, even he started a masjid there. He traveled all around the world doing all these different uh, recitations and stuff. Uh, interestingly, in one interview, they asked him about the experience of reciting in the holy places. The experience of reciting in the holy places. And... Um, he said to them that that's uh, when you're reciting in those places, Masjid al-Haram and Masjid al-Aqsa, Masjid al-Nabawi, you can't really explain the feeling you get with words because it's an experience. It's a ruhani experience, which I thought was really interesting. You know, he he clearly had this kind of like dhok taste for the spiritual, because he said like you can't explain it. Actually, it's a feeling that you have when you're in those places and when you're reciting in those places but you can't really uh, speak about it because it won't benefit the person uh, 
They asked him what was his, what's the favorite dua that he likes to repeat. And he said, Allahumma inni dhanamtu nafsi dhunman kathira wa la yaghfiru dhunuba illa ant faghfirli maghfiratan min indik warhamni innaka ant al-ghafoorul rahim. Which is one of the duas that's, um, that actually the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam taught Sayyidina Abu Bakr radiallahu an. And it's one of the duas that's often used at the end of salah. Uh, you know, after you do your tashahud, after you, after you do your uh, salat Ibrahimiyyah, and you go into that last piece of the salat where you can make different types of du'as, this is one of the du'as that's used in that uh, place. It means, Oh Allah, I have wronged myself tremendously, and nobody forgives sins except for you. So, so, so forgive me a forgiveness that is from you, and have mercy on me, you are the one who is forgiving and merciful. And they asked him, do you, do you have a favorite verse from the Qur'an? And he said, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu taqullaha wa kunu ma'as-sadiqeen O you who believe, have taqwa and be with as-sadiqeen Be with the people who are truthful Honest, uh, truthful people, be with them Interestingly, this is also the verse that is Um kind of used a lot in regards to keeping the company of righteous people this idea of like the importance of suhba of keeping the company of righteous people and the benefits that it gives us spiritually that uh, that is uh, from this you know they, they quote this verse a lot in that regard um, one qari who they were talking to who traveled with him said, I, I loved him because I loved his father. Before even loving him for who he was, I loved him because I loved his father. So his, his father was someone that was well-known and respected and such. Um, and he said that uh, Sheikh Muhammad Sadiq was the kind of person who can look at you and know from looking at you what it is that you need or that you're thinking about or that's bothering you and uh, address that with you, subhanAllah. Uh, they say that he loved to listen to music. Some people don't like to hear these things, but they say that he loved to listen to music, and that in particular he loved to listen to a Sayyidah Um Kulthum. Uh, you know, who's, I think anyone who speaks Arabic knows a Sayyidah Um Kulthum, Rahimahullah, the, the great singer of, uh, of Egypt. And um, what else do we have here? There's a great story of him with the president of Egypt, Abdul Nasser, uh, at one point when he was invited. He, he didn't, it seems that he had a little bit of, with Abdul Nasser, um, that he didn't like, for example, like the way, the things that he heard about the way that Abdul Nasser dealt with his opponents, political opponents, which was very harsh, um, to say the least. It said that, for example, like certain times he refused to see him, he refused to go to gatherings where he was invited by him and stuff like that, um, which would normally get you killed, but uh, tortured and killed. But uh, you know, somehow he got away with this. Uh, it said that one time a messenger was sent to him, and the messenger told him, "Say, yakunu laka sharafan kabir bi hudurika, haflan yahduruhu al-ra'is." They told him, you have the great honor 
of attending a gathering that will be attended by the president. فأجاب لماذا لا يكون هذا الشرف لعبد الناصر نفسه نفسه أي يستمع إلى القرآن بصوت محمد صديق المنشاوي. He said to him, uh, he said to this messenger from the from the president, uh, why is the honor not for Abdul Nasser himself, who gets to hear the Quran from the voice of Muhammad Siddiq al Minshawi? Actually, his the expression there is really interesting. He doesn't just say that he gets to listen to me. He didn't say that. He said he gets to listen to the Quran from my voice. So it wasn't about him. It was about the Quran actually. So he said, how come, how, come the, the, how come you don't say that the honor is for him, that he gets to listen to the Qur'an while I recite it? That's the actual honor, right? Um, and then, you know, when, they, when he was asked about that and stuff, he told them, this, the president sent me the worst of his messengers. He didn't know how to speak properly. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't come. <laughs> but he refused to say the guy's name. He didn't want him to get in trouble, right? So... Uh, subhanallah So they say in one of the articles They said that it seems that he was on the Menhaj of Sheikh Muhammad Rifat Which we'll cover next week inshallah Which is Qariyan Qur'an la yuhan Qariyan Qur'an la yuhan That the reciter of the Qur'an Is never put in a position that is dishonorable um, This to be quite frank Is one of the biggest problems in our communities uh, That the Qari of the Qur'an, the person who really is a, is a masterful reciter of the Qur'an, they really know their art, is someone who is to be honored by the teachings of the Sharia, not just by, uh, we should honor everyone, but we should treat such people with extra respect and extra dignity, and, uh, and the people of knowledge as well. And many of them in the past, they didn't accept to be treated in any sort of disrespectful way ever. Um, and they they felt and they understood this to be a reflection not of themselves but of the maqam of what they represent. So the scholar of uh, the reciter of the Quran represents the Quran in a sense. The scholar of the religion represents the prophetic inheritance, and so they would never ever accept for people to deal with them in a way that was disrespectful. And we've told many stories about this in the past, especially with Imam Malik radiAllahu an. That he would tell people like you know that Khalifa wanted his children to study with him, so he invited him to to Iraq to study with his children to teach his children, and Malik told him you know knowledge doesn't go knowledge is come to, and if you want your children to study with me you send your children to me I don't come to them, and some people like in our community now there's a there's a type of spiritual abuse that happens to religious leaders. And that's when community members use spiritual concepts to justify their abuse of religious leaders. This is the side of spiritual abuse that nobody talks about, uh, but is also very prominent. So, for example, you know, you tell the Quran teacher, you uh, belittle them and humiliate them because they want to get paid for their for their work, um, which is allowed by the fuqaha, especially in the later period, and. Um, and you tell them, oh, you know, you shouldn't be taking money for the Qur'an and this and that. What do you want, what do you want them to do? You know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's an imam about this recently. And an interaction that I had with one community. And he told me, uh, 
He told me, it's like, but they don't, they don't want to do this for you. Why don't they just give you, maybe they can give you a space outside of the masjid where you can hold your kufi and ask for money after Jummah because they don't want to give you anything for, they, they don't feel that you have any value. So at least maybe they can give you a space where you can, you can beg and ask for some money from them. You know? Um, <laughs> shahata, like you're just, you know, going to come and beg people for money because they don't have any honor. Where are people who, who don't respect the, the concept itself We spend hundreds and hundreds and thousands And millions of dollars on buildings And when it comes to the religious leader And I'm not talking about people who are like corrupt Or people who um, Don't really do their job properly Or people who are lazy Or people who don't aren't qualified Which we do have many of those as well But because like the people who are making decisions Don't really know what they're doing So you know uh, that's That's usually what ends up happening But then now, I'm not talking about people like that, but I'm talking about like people who are really qualified. And then when it comes time to, to, to compensate them, so that they can do the work that they need to do, then people will be like, you know, you should give them sixty thousand dollars. You should give them fifty thousand dollars. And and they themselves who are making these decisions, making two hundred thousand dollars a year, three hundred. I'm not saying the imam should make that much. I'm just saying that, you know, what happens to love for your brother, what you love for yourself. You're gonna depend. You're gonna depend on someone to teach your children, to teach your family, to serve the people, to teach non-Muslims, to be there when someone dies, to be there when someone's sick, and then when it comes time to to pay them, you just throw them the scraps, and then on top of it, you want to give them zakat. You want to make everything a zakat donation. So you want to give them awsakh amwal nas. Zakat is awsakh amwal nas. Actually, that's what it's for. It's to to purify the wealth. Um, anyways So uh, I don't even know why I got on this right now Oh he had this conflict But That they're not They're not to be um, um, <coughs> They're not to be uh, Disrespected in this way Not to be disrespected in this way um, Same way teachers and tutors get paid They should too I mean, teachers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know. Anyways, alhamdulillah, they should. But it's like pulling teeth. It's like pulling teeth sometimes. You're dealing with a community that has incredible wealth. Subhanallah. Uh, so he had this conflict with Abdul Nasser. Very interesting one. Qari al Quran la yuhan. There's another story about the radio. That's what I said that there will, there will be a story about the radio later on, uh, where it's it's said that, um, and I thought this was really amazing. Um, that when he was asked to come and and come to the radio and take the exam, to be someone who recites for the radio, again you see the karama, see the karama of the person. He responded and he said, "No, I'm not going to come." He said, لا أريد القراءة بالإذاعة ولست في حاجة إلى شهرتها ولا أقبل أن يعقد يعقل لي هذا الامتحان. He said, no, I don't, I don't need to recite for the radio, and I'm not in need of the uh, fame that comes with that, and I don't accept for this exam to be held for me. He said, no, I'm not gonna, you're not gonna test me. معليش <laughs> يعني I I know what I'm doing. My father knew what he was doing. My grandfather knew what he was doing. My great grandfather knew what he was doing. My brother knows what he was doing. All the people in my community know that I know what I'm doing, and 
uh, if you want me to come and recite, then I'll, you know, you tell me how that's going to happen, but I'm not going to have this exam taken for I'm not going to sit for this exam. And, uh, and I don't need you. I don't need, I don't need to recite on the radio so that I can be famous. I don't need that. And this, I think, was a really interesting, to me, that was a really interesting statement because uh, this is the, the MO of our time, so to speak. Everything is about becoming famous now. Everyone wants to be famous for everything. And they like life hack being famous. They life hack being an expert so that they can, uh, you know, sell some sort of course and make a little money, which is just disgusting. And uh, this is not, you know, the way that uh, the sheikh was like, no, I don't need the fame. I don't, I don't need that. I don't, you know, it's not what I'm here for. I'm reciting the Quran. I'm happy. I'm, I'm, uh, it's good for me. And subhanAllah, like this is, this is um, this is the honor that these people had, subhanAllah. Allah yarhamu. And he passed away again early at the age of 49. Um, rahmatullah alayhi. I'm going to play a little bit of a um, recording. I just don't want to do it again in a way that will make it so that we get copyright problems or something. But I'll just show you the picture quickly. This is the sh- these are some pictures of the Sheikh. You can find him, uh, Sheikh Al Manshawi. I'll, I'll play one of these. Uh, the Sheikh, Allah Yarhamu, he, um, I, what I imagine when I listen to his recitation is I imagine um, water flowing. Water flowing. That's what, that's what I feel like his recitation is. This one's a slower recitation. It's a mujawad, not a murattal, but the murattal, that's what I feel like. Um, so we'll listen to this for a couple minutes, not all of it, and then we'll continue. Uh-uh, don't skip this video. Yeah, okay. We're going to skip this video. Marish. Yeah, thanks.
Okay, it's too beautiful. If we if we let it go too long, then uh, we'll get lost <laughs> because it's just too beautiful. Mashallah. Rahimahullah ta'ala. Rahimahullah ta'ala. All right. So now we move on to Sheikh Mahmoud Khalil Al Husari, the undisputed heavyweight champion of the Quran world. Rahimahullah ta'ala, the great great Quran reciter of the last century. Uh, the one in this picture as I've mentioned before this is one of my favorite pictures you have to bear the there so that you don't have to see my reflection uh, this is Sheikh Al-Husri in his regalia his beautiful Sheikh clothes with his Azhari Imama uh, hat and his shawl and all this beautiful clothes with who he is, the, one of the great greatest reciters of the last hundred years. Um, sitting on the ground, the pigeons are eating from his hands. You can tell he's sitting on the ground by the angle, you know, and by where the pigeons are and stuff. But he's on the ground, maybe on the curb, and the pigeons are eating from his hand. I think this is such a... It's such a beautiful picture. So when the someone sent it to me and I had to print it, get it made, to put there as a reminder, alhamdulillah. So this is Sheikh Al-Husri, he's born in September of 1917 in Shubra Namla in the area of Tanta. So uh, who was it last week? I want to say it was... Um, Sheikh Mahmoud Ali Banna. Yeah. Sheikh Mahmoud Ali Banna last week when we were talking about him, when we talked about how he was going to the Mahid of Azhar. He was going to the Azhar school, but then or or he was going to the Islamic Studies school and then he was advised to go to uh, Al Masjid al Ahmadi in Tanta and study with Sheikh Ibrahim Salam. And and uh, it turns out that Sheikh Husri also was a student of Sheikh Ibrahim Salam, which is amazing if you think about it. Like this Sheikh, on his hands, came two of the greatest reciters of the entire century, which is uh, like amazing to think about. And we mentioned that he was blind and how he would test the people when they would come. You can review last week's if you don't remember that. Uh, so Sheikh Al-Husri, he memorized the Quran when he was about 10 years old. One place where I read it or heard it, it said eight years old, and then I believe I heard it, an actual recording of himself saying that it was when he was ten years old. Uh, he was the Qadi of Al Masjid al Ahmadi from 1950 uh, until 1955, and then from Masjid al Hussein from 1955 until when he died. In um, oh shoot, I did that again where I didn't write it down. Until when he died, and I want to say 1980. Um, Yes, 1980. So from 1955 to 1980, he was the Qadi of Masjid al-Hussein, which is a long time, mashallah. Notably, he was the first person to record the entire Qur'an on the riwayah of Hafs al-Asim, which is the one that we recite most commonly. Um, 
of the Quran, he was the first to re- record the entire thing. Then he was the first to reco- record wa- uh, Warsh and Qalun. He recorded all of them, uh, their entirety. And uh, when he did that first recording of Hafs, actually the Quran radio in Egypt only played him for about 10 years. As I mentioned before, there's a difference between the Egyptian radio when it first started and the Egyptian Quran radio. So the Egyptian Quran radio played him for about, they say, for about 10 years uh, exclusively. And they took his, he took his ijazah, as I mentioned, from Sheikh Ibrahim Salam. Um, he was known for his generosity. Like all of these people, subhanAllah. They said that his daughter says that their house was basically open door all the time. Open door all the time. And they had a majlis in the house, of course, like a, a sitting room. And that room had a special um, uh, chair for like cer- certain people, like the Mufti, the Sheikh Al Azhar, the Mufti, stuff like that. Sheikh uh, Mahmoud Shaltut used to love him, had a deep love for him. Used to come to his gathering all the time and sit with him. And um, and his daughter says that so we were f- serving people all the time, cooking and serving food all the time. And the interviewer, they asked her, like, well, did it become tiring? Was it difficult on you guys? She was like, no, this is how we we were accustomed to this. This is how we were raised, was to serve the people, cook for the people, bring food to the people. And the people would be visiting my father, the great sheikh, and we would be honored to serve the guest, his guests, you know. It's a different philosophy on the world, subhanAllah. Um, and so the, he also was, um, you know, a lot of these... Some of these qadis, at least in these different people, when you get to that level, actually you end up being wealthy, especially as time passes. Maybe in the beginning, no, but by the time you're older, you become quite wealthy because the kinds of prizes that you're getting, they have prizes, you know, like, for example, there's a prize internationally for Islamic studies every year. And I think the person who wins it gets like a million dollars. So if you're... Uh, you know, if uh, there's probably things like that for Qurra too, for recitation of the Quran and stuff like that, and um, so he. Uh, w- but when he died, he he appointed one third of his wealth, which is the max that you can give, open ended, you know, outside of what you're required to give to your heirs. Uh, by by the Sharia, there's one third of it you can kind of give where you want to other than your heirs. So one third of it he gave in charity to projects uh, supporting the Quran, uh, schools that teach Quran and stuff like that. And actually, when he first recited the Quran, just to give you like this balance, you know, just because the person made money doesn't mean that they were about money. Um, when he actually, you know, when they first wanted to record the entire Quran, they they put out like a call for samples and then like how much basically a person would want to be compensated for the project. And when he sent in his sample, they listened to it and they're like, wow, this is beautiful. And they looked at the note of how much he would want to be compensated for it. And it said he, he doesn't want any monetary reward for this uh, to do this. And, um, you know, this became actually very, his recitation being recorded in its entirety um, was extremely important because, again, now recitation, you have radio, you have recordings, all these things, and now you have this recording that's absolutely authoritative. It's absolutely authoritative. Anyone from anywhere in the world can pick up a mushaf, like maybe they don't know. Maybe, okay, they found this copy of the mushaf, 
They don't know is it reliable or not. They can open it and listen to his recording and know for sure whether or not it's a correct copy of the Quran. Right. So uh, it became it was it was a really big deal that he did that, and he didn't want any monetary reward for it. Um, they also say that um, when they first installed speakers in the Haramain, when they first installed speakers in Masjid and uh, Nabawi, in Medina, and the Masjid al Haram in Mecca, that the one that they specifically flew him out from Cairo to recite into the speakers so they could check the sound through using his recitation. So he was given this great honor. Um, show you a little bit of the adab that the, the people had. Um, one of the beautiful stories about him is that his daughter says that whenever they would uh, go to their village and they'd be driving in the car, you know, and they, they go to the village. When they get to the village uh, area, they would pass by this particular spot. And anytime they pass by this spot, he would tell them to stop the car. And when they would stop the car, he would get out. He, every time he would tell them to stop the car, he would stop, they would stop the car, he would get out. And he would walk past the tree. And he'd walk past this tree. And then once he walks past the tree, the car would pull up and he'd get back in the car and they'd keep going. So they asked him, they're like, uh, you know, what's the story with this tree? What's the situation? And he said that this is the tree where I finished and completed my memorization of the Quran. And so... Um, so I, I, I feel shy to just drive past it. I have to get down and I have to walk past it and then I can get back in the car. This was like the... And actually he, he kept his eye on that piece of land and he uh, eventually they bought that piece of land. He bought that piece of land and he turned it into a school for the Quran and a masjid. Uh, you know, a masjid, and they built this masjid on it. They built a Mahid Azhari. They built an Azhar school for the Quran in that in that place. Mahid and Husari. So, uh, Subhanallah, this is the adab they had. Actually, Sheikh Al Manshawi also, in one of his interviews, he said that one of the reasons he likes to go back to his village is because these places in his village are the places where he memorized the Quran. So he has this connection to them, and he likes to go to them. And he likes to visit them. Um, if you remember from the Burda class on Sundays, the idea of atlal, the 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 remnants of the where the beloved was. So for them, their beloved was the Quran, and so you know they like to go to these places where they memorize the Quran, where they. Uh, and Subhanallah, maybe some of us have this kind of interaction or experience with different places as well. For me, uh, the Islamic Center of San Diego is like that. Because that was like the place where the fr like my first prayers in a masjid were prayed there, and the first time like dealing with the community and meeting people and learning how to pray and learning Quran and all like all of these first incidents happened in that masjid really for the most part. So anytime I go into that place, it's like a special feeling. Just looking at even the, it doesn't matter how many times they change the carpet, how many times they do whatever, but like it's still something in the air of that place and so he also you know he this place under the tree he wanted to respect that place and honor that place and then eventually again they made the masjid on it um i mentioned that his family was always serving uh 
and that um, uh, that he died. He died in November of 1980, so he lived longer. Um, 63. It's not that old still, but it's it's older than some of the other ones that we've heard. And Rahimahullah um, Taala. And again, you know, he's kind of like him and Minshawi are kind of like the the go-tos if you're trying to learn Quran uh, and you want to f- listen to the people who are really accurate. Those two are kind of like the ones to go to. Rahimahumullah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala have mercy on them. Uh, there's probably more, but uh, I wasn't able to prepare more than that uh, for for him. Sheikh Al-Manshaw was able to prepare more, but for him I wasn't able to prepare. Even though he was the one that was kind of like the... Other than uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Saifi, Rahimahumullah, uh, Sheikh Fuad's great-grandfather, um, Shaykh al-Husri was the big motivation because of the picture and because of just but subhanallah al-awqat lam tasa' there wasn't enough time because these actually lectures take a lot longer to prepare than most normal things because I have to sit and listen to like hours of recordings and take notes and it takes longer than some of the other things that we teach but uh, let's listen to a little bit of his recitation um uh, let me put this up. Al Al Husari. So these are some of his pictures. Uh, he was also a scholar, by the way. Like some Qadis, they're specialized only in recitation, not in necessarily like the different branches of knowledge connected to it. But he was a scholar in addition to that. He actually authored a number of books. Um, so this is a great. A great clip. He's just, you can see he's in, I'm not going to play it because I don't want to get our video copyright banned or something, but you can see from the preview that uh, he's just in another world in this in this uh, recitation here. Yeah. 
That is one amazing passage of verses. I don't know if it tells you. Um, I'd have to look it up to figure out where it is, but that is there it is. Uh, didn't tell you the surah though. <laughs> look at people. <laughs> Someone commented, it's a beautiful recitation, but why is he swaying so much? Did he have a neck problem? Yeah, Latif, Ultaf, Bina, Fima, Jarrat, Bihin, Maqadir. What a comment. Alright, uh, so that's Shaykh al-Husri, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. Like I said, in, uh, I'm going to read a small biography that someone shared with me of a prominent Shaykh in... Um, in the modern period as well and uh, I didn't put together this myself uh, one, uh, one brother shared it with me I, I don't know if he would want people to know that so I'll just say it that way otherwise I'd be happy to attribute it to him but um, so let me read this her name is Sheikha Umm Sa'ad Umm Sa'ad Umm Sa'ad uh, Sheikha Umm Sa'ad bint Muhammad ibn Ali ibn Najm was born on 13 in 1343 after Hijra or 1925 in Munufia in Egypt and uh, at the age of two she lost her eyesight and due to her father's work they moved and settled in Alexandria she started her memorization of the Quran at the age of five and completed it when she was 10 years old at the age of 15 she went to Sheikh Nufaysa bint Abdul Ala to study Qira'at and Sheikha Nufaysa dedicated her life to teaching the Qur'an and the Qira'at and in spite of the many marriage proposals she received uh, she never married and chose to teach Qur'an instead 
she also became very despondent in that many of her female students upon whom she had sacrificed much time and effort neglected to teach what they had gained from her after getting married. Thus, when Sheikh Um Sa'ad came to her, she accepted to teach her the Qira'at on the very strange condition that she would not get married. She's like, look, I've had too many students. I teach them so much and then they go and they get married and they don't teach anymore. And this like knowledge dies with them. So she made her put this condition that she won't get married. So Sheikh Um Sa'ad agreed to this condition and it was in this manner that she read the 10 Qira'at via the Shaltibiya and the Durra to Sheikh Nufaysa and at the age of 23 she, com- she completed her study of the 10 Qira'at. <coughs> Thereafter, uh, she started teaching in uh, Alexandria and due to her blindness, she studied nothing else except the Qur'an and Qira'at and her mind was preoccupied only with the Qur'an and the text of Tajweed and Qira'at that she had memorized. Like This was everything in her mind. And uh, it was not, therefore, unusual that she became an expert in these sciences. All over the world, the name Um Umasad was known not only for her expertise and proficiency in the science of Qur'at, but also for her high senad. Men and women from all over the world traveled to read to her. She would teach women from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. and men from 2 p.m. until 8 p.m. in the evening. So she's listening to people recite 12 hours, you know, or, or, yeah. 12 hours in the day. They would break only for prayers, eating, and other necessary duties. In 1999, she spent 10 months in Riyadh where many read and benefited from her. For 60 years, she continued reading, teaching the Qur'an in this manner. Towards the end of her life, she stated, 60 years of memorizing and revising the Qur'an and its Qira'at has made it such that I cannot forget anything of it. I know every verse of the Qur'an, in which surah it appears, which juz, its mutashabihat, the verses that are similar to it, and how to read it in all of its different variations of recitation. It is as if I know the Qur'an like my very name. I do not sense that I would forget or falter in it because there is nothing else I know except the Qur'an and the Qira'at. SubhanAllah. Um, the happiest day in her life would be the day that someone completed their recitation of the Qur'an whether it was in one narration or one qira'ah or in the ten qira'at and it was a day when everyone would come together and they would cook great meals and eat together after the demise of her teacher she, mar- she received a marriage proposal from one of the students who had completed the ten qira'at by her Sheikh Muhammad Farid Nu'man so she had the student who read Qur'an to her and after her teacher passed away this student uh, proposed to her and he was also blind like her and had dedicated his entire life to the Qur'an, like her. And though they remained married for 40 years, they had no children. However, between them, they had countless students. When she was asked concerning her students, she replied that she could recall every single one of them, including what they had read to her. May Allah be pleased with her and forgive her and accept her efforts. MashaAllah, these great, great people, they're hidden all over the place. Because they're not in need of the shuhra. They don't care for the fame. They're just doing the knowledge. So only the people who are dedicated to the knowledge are the ones who know them. Um, so this is Sheikh Umasad. Sheikha Umasad. Um,
There's also some others. The brother who shared this with me, he actually went to them. There were some older women who were uh, qari'as in, in Egypt that had very high senates. Uh, Sheikh al-Sami'ah, uh, Muhammad al-Sayyid Bakr, and Sheikh Tanadur, Muhammad Mustafa al-Najuli. Both of them were in Egypt. Both of them passed away in the last 12 months. But I didn't look up their biographies yet. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. So... Subhanallah, uh, these great people exist. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us their company and help us to benefit from them and help us to uh, be part of what they were what they, what they were a part of, which was the preservation and propagation of this beautiful religion. Allahumma ameen. Sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anna astaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk wal asr inna al-insana lafi khusr illa al-lazina amanu wa amilu al-salihat wa tawasu bin haqqi wa tawasu bin sabr Zakumullahu khayran Inshallah we will see you next time Ramadan Mubarak to everyone Kullu amanu antum bi khayr